Many thanks for downloading the Fantasy Animation Podcast, brought to you by fantasy-animation.org. If you like what you hear and want to know where the fantasy animation story began, the book Fantasy Animation, Connections Between Media, Mediums and Genres is still available from all great bookshops and online stockists. Read chapters on topics from German Expressionism to Japanese anime, from Disney to Pixar, and from Game of Thrones to How to Drain Your Dragon. The book normally comes in at between £20 and £50, but if you've got some spare change or are in charge of making requests to institutional libraries, Fantasy Animation might just be the book for you. Think of it as the podcast, but in written form. But for now, please do enjoy the show. Hello again, avid listeners, and welcome to this latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holiday, And me, Alex Sargent. For this shiny, brand new episode, we are delighted to be joined by Stuart Messenger, who uh, works largely in the business of visual effects, uh, and has been uh, as part of the visual effects department on a number of feature films, uh, a list of which includes, amongst others, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, and, the, uh, and as well as The Order of the Phoenix, uh, Poseidon, Hogfather, The Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, uh, Ardman's The Pirate's Adventures with Scientist, and Daniel Craig's best Bond movie, uh, said without irony, uh, Quantum of Solace. Stuart, very many thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, no, so now, Stuart, you're here today to talk about those films I mentioned uh, and more, but particularly for us, we're interested in your work uh, on Tim Burton's 2005 remake of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, where, am I right in saying you took on the role of VFX coordinator? Correct. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so to kick things off, we were just wondering, Alex and I were wondering, what got you involved in, in the project? Um, and then obviously we can use that as a jumping off point to talk about visual effects more broadly, uh, a bit of Tim Burton, and then we'll go through the movie. But first of all, what was it that, that um, yeah... Kind of took you to the project? Well, I've always sort of been involved in animation and the arts. Um, I did a BA and then a master's. Um, and then from my master's at the Royal College of Art, I was really looking for the next step. Um, and kind of my early career really got off to sort of, um, with thanks to, to, to luck and chance more than anything. Um, so I was working on a project uh, called Valiant. Oh yeah, yeah. the computer animated film. Yeah, based at Ealing Studios, which again I got sort of really through luck um, because my nana at the time lived in uh, Ealing. She got wind that this project was happening, Um, so I just applied um, for an internship, and then two years later saw the end of the project. Yeah, and I knew that Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was happening, and it was um, well underway um, in terms of. Uh, production it was being shot um and I kind of it was very much on my cultural radar anyway I love yeah. the book it's one of my top five favorite books mm-hmm. and I was like this is my literally yeah. my golden ticket job I want yeah. this job and literally the night before um I got a call I was like the, the trailer had just been um launched um and I was like I want this job I want to I want to work on this project so the trailer was um, no no what sorry it wasn't the trailer it was that they had shown some uh, the first ah, sort of the so first it was in production yeah and, no yeah. it was well well into production right, right. and um and i was like i wanted to get on, on this project and literally the next day um i got a telephone call from one of the the recruiters at mpc the moving pitch company um the now oscar winning um company behind the jungle book um saying, hi Stuart, we've heard that you are potentially looking for a new job, Valiant's coming to an end. Yeah. 
how would you like to work on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? And I seriously stopped and looked around to see who was kind of pulling my chain. Hidden cameras. Yeah, who, yeah, who was sure. pranking me? Because I'd literally said the night before I really wanted to work on this job. Um, and so it was, it was really luck. And it was only through sort of the, the, the network that I had developed whilst on Valiant um, that someone else had suggested that this guy would, would do the job. Um, yeah. And so I went through, I think I had five interviews for that position um, on the project. And that was, it was long. But then Valiant finished in December and I was straight in on, on January um, the 5th, I think it was, that I wow. started on that project. So, so before we go into the sort of what happened when you got the job and things, I'd like that's a really fun story for me. But first, the enthusiasm of Dahl and, and, mm. and sort of uh, growing up with that, because I think um, the film struck me as being very keen to sort of reorientate the story back to Dahl mm. rather than sort of the old Wilder version, which is very much sort of, you know, yeah. it's terrific, but it's terrific in a very different kind of way. Um, so I guess one, could you talk a little bit about um, what you, what spoke to you about the book and what you were excited to, why were you excited to work on it? And then if there was any picture coming from the studio as to what kind of movie it was going to be yeah. so you knew what you were getting yourself in sure. for. Sure. I mean, the book is kind of real world magic for me. And I yeah. think that's because it's, there's always that chance, you know, that, that there is that chance. And although there are only five golden tickets, four had already been found. So there's a great sentence in the book, you know, it's sort of like, you know, but there was still a possibility that, yeah. and I just love that. And I kind of, there's always that chance. Uh -huh. um, and the, the, the real world magic, you know, this sort of, hidden figure of Wonka um, but he's globally known the enigmatic sort of candy you know mogul mogul yeah <laughs> is just fantastic and and I think that, that again with sort of Harry Potter there's that that known world but it's actually very hidden um, and that sort of cross between the magic and the real world really sort of has massive appeal also they're horrible children uh -huh. and yeah. they're so memorable um and the way that Dahl in particular sort of handles the talking about those children is, is so memorable. Um, as a child, you know, sort of reading that book. And yeah, it, and then the combination of the words, but also Quentin Blake's illustrations yeah. in certain publications, just magic, yeah. you know, just magic. Um, so it's always been sort of very strongly in my sort of mm. public, um, in my, my, my consciousness. Um, and then, sorry, what was the second part? Of so, and, then, and then I guess with all that, what's, what kind of glimpses to the Burton project were you getting? Well, Did you get a sense as to what kind of, you know, that they were going to go back more towards the novel? Not or? initially. But I joined the project kind of quite late. Like okay. I said, everything had been shot by that point. Okay. Um, so the live was, action stuff. Yeah, that, every, that, everything right, okay. had been shot. I don't, there were maybe a couple of cutaways. I think for the opening sequence, they still had to do... Um, Wonka's hand putting the tickets in right a right. few sort of pickup shots right. had to still be shot but for the majority it had all been um, completed mm -hmm. I was brought on to manage two sequences the chocolate palace with Prince Pondicherry oh, building okay, the great. tower when we um, watched that I said to Alex that's pretty cool it's, so, yeah and it's very uh, beautiful and I yeah, love sort of the saturation and the light quality they I'd bring love to, to about it that. Yeah. and then also the white tunnel ride um, uh -huh. where they get in the pink candy boat and go down the, the pipes um, and because everything had been shot, we were being delivered live action plates. Um, normally when you're working on visual effects, you don't necessarily get, um, audio with 
the plates. It's just literally because then you know you can't sort of necessarily distribute them or do things you shouldn't with oh, them. Okay. So by removing the audio, it kind of safeguards them a little bit. Um, I don't know if that's still the case. That's interesting. So you're working from silent. So you're working, you're just, yeah. But because it was musical and we would, um, the facility we're working on all the Oompa Loompa sequences, we needed to have that sense of rhythm okay. and the lyrics yeah. as well. So we kind of got a little bit of a sense of the sequences of, yep, these Oompa Loompas, they are singing, they are dancing. Um, we got an idea of Johnny Depp's voice at the time as well, which was kind of very much a sort of kept... Um, right entity you know they really wanted to keep that sort of very under wraps naturally um but as a as a whole I, there wasn't really a, a true sense of whether they were going right back to the root mm. i mean you could tell as well because of certain changes that had evolved later on particularly in the film where the narrative goes more for this search of a father figure sort of mm. um that there were differences mm -hmm. evolving um but no no true sense that yeah this was totally new or total back to sort of... Okay. That must have been challenging in terms of working out the tone of the... Yeah. And again, both sort of the director and Alex McDowell, the art director, had very clear visions as to what they wanted for certain parts, with exception possibly of the White Tunnel ride, which was kind of joked that it was kind of slightly the orphaned sequence. And by the time that I joined, they were kind of like, here you go. Um, here's a mood board. Here's some live action plates. Um... Tim really wanted it sort of to have this white ceramic um, feel, um, saturated colours, but white ceramic mixed with brown chocolate. Got to be careful; it doesn't just look like a pipe of poo. Yep. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it was that the perils that, of the visual effects. Yeah, exactly. Artists. That was yeah, slash we, pipe of We mud. don't want it to look like a toilet. Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 but yeah, yeah. it is white ceramic and brown liquid. Yeah. So sure. Yeah, that was kind of very much a guiding light. Does it look too sure. much like poo? You've got, you got the sort of uncanny valley of poo and mud, I think. Yes. The original yeah. movie, I remember, with the chocolate room, it looks well, like, it just looked like water, water, doesn't water. it? Yeah. yeah. And at least we did have the sort of the reference of um, you know, the chocolate room that actually was practical on Pinewood and they did loads of sort of element tests and reference material so that we could get a sense of the viscosity of it and... Um, that obviously had to be replicated in, in various different states as they went through. So you had all the chocolate room footage, but that's, yeah. has that got any CGI? They must have some CGI. Yeah, it's a combination. Of, and you yeah. hadn't, didn't have access to that at the time? Uh, yes, the other sort of teams were working on, right. on all of that okay. simultaneously, although they were, okay. you know, they were quite more advanced sort of by, by that point. So you had some senses of the colour palette. Of oh, totally, yeah. Colour palette, yeah, great sense. Visual sense, definitely. Okay. But in terms of sort of the, the narrative yeah. tone um, and how it harked back to... Um, the original source. It, yeah, we didn't quite have that sense. Okay, and then the, and so you worked on the boat, the boat ride because the boat ride sequence. This is I'd like to because I I know the thing is pitched as a uh, as a reimagining of the novel as all mm. as all things that have a film version often are yeah. right. Um, but that boat sequence is very interesting because there is there's not much, there is this great big boat in the novel, mm. but it's not really it's sort of there's no action sequence going no. on there. It's just they get on this lovely boat and go to it's the next room. It's a narrative room. device at the end of the day, mm. getting the car or the characters from one place to yeah. another. Um, and again, it's sort of how the director chose to take it. And again, in the, the original Wilder version. Yeah, um, and that's a very infamous sequence, Mel isn't Stewart it? Mel Stewart directed that, was that uh, right? Yes, yeah, I, I believe think, it yeah. was. And that is kind of, 
I mean, it's, again, so memorable for the right and the wrong reasons. Yeah. From a child's perspective, it's utterly terrifying. Yeah. And I really remember that sort of back projection of the chicken having its head chopped off and things. And it's kind of like, well, why is that there? And it's just to create this sense of sort of terror, isn't it? Mm. And then Burton's version is kind of quite tame mm. by comparison. And I think everyone was kind of, ex- the, you know, audience expectation for areas like that within the story where you've got this very sort of psychedelic... 1970s highly saturated version I think that everyone kind of was expecting it to to be even more exaggerated if anything that's the moment in the original movie that feels it's most Burtonian yes yeah and it was very sort of toned down and it it was very much as a um, yeah as as a roller coaster ride really Mm -hmm. a a dark tunnel ride um, and a theme park was the sort of the the guiding light so how was that shaped like what what you sound like you had a bit of freedom on that. To, to some degree, there was obviously they'd shot the live action plates based on very early previews, which was kind of hilarious, and I don't know if it will ever be seen. But they had used uh, other figures. They weren't Wonka specific previews figures. They were um, James Bond made an appearance as as Wonka, so he sat there in a tux and a, a bow tie, very low resolution. The children were various other sort of assets that would my mind is racing yeah. now <laughs> sorry this is and it was it's hilarious <laughs> and the the Oompa Loompas were just these sort of very box-headed um characters with Deep Roy's face the actor who plays the Oompa Loompas just sort of very crudely projected on it um so there was a shape um but there was opportunity for sort of embellishment within that within the gags in particular because they sort of pass various doors and cow being whipped um, for whipped cream and hair cream and 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 that actually was probably the longest part of the process is getting getting confirmation on what was going to be written on these doors and again with approval from Tim in particular as to what the gags were going to be because the characters make reference to some of them in the dialogue but then there was sort of how far can we go with sort of visual embellishment for, for and there were loads, you know, I think we probably had about 40, maybe 50 doors that actually passed them and we really sort of agonised over the what was allowed to be labelled on these doors. But in the sequence, you just don't see them. Yeah, they just yeah. pass so quickly. But at the time, it was detail. And I think that that's a, another sort of vision into the world is the, it was very detail-orientated vision. Um, some of which was relevant, some of which became irrelevant in uh-huh. the cut of the film. Um, Interesting. And so what, what were some of the door ideas? that you know, I really can't remember. Uh, I did somewhere have a list of, um, <laughs> of them. But yeah, so again, just playing on words, you know, mm-hmm. jumping beans, Mexican beans, has beans, <laughs> fried beans, yeah. um, all of those sort of, you know, just sort of trying to... Um, and there was a deep room as well, which again, Tim was very sort of, um, he wanted a deep room because it referred to Deep Roy. Okay. A deep room. And it, right, you know, just right. sort of really, and again, it just didn't make the cut. Um, what would have been in the deep room? Well, who knows? <laughs> Lots of deep. So sure, think, sure, yeah. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. As, you know, the Oompa Loompas, yeah. you know, okay. multiple deeps. Oh, okay. <laughs> I wanted to just—it's it's actually because one of the first notes we mentioned a little bit on color, and and, mm. uh, and obviously one of the one of the first sequences that you said that you worked on comes early on in the film. Yes. Um, but actually, the thing I wanted to ask you that I I um, I guess I don't know much about, or at least I'm trying to learn a bit about, is that you said that there are multiple visual effects studios working mm. simultaneously. Mm. So you come in and you're working alongside or as part of a unit of different visual effects and actually before we started you were talking about a little bit about um certain sequences obviously allocated to certain yes is that right is that yes yeah, quite correct. standard where so certain sequences allocated to certain studios the sort of 
there are multiple visual effects studios um, and a, a Warner Brothers, for example, um, will employ a number okay. of, of those. Sometimes uh, for specific skills that they already have okay. or that, yeah, um, that they've done previously or that they are interested in evolving a relationship with. So to use um, Harry Potter, for example, um, I looked after Voldemort, the nose replacement um, in oh, yeah. the... Potter 4, so it was Goblet of Fire, the first time that Voldemort is sort of seen in his sort of full human, and I use that very loosely, um, state. And so we were looking after the nose, we were also looking after the wand effects, another um, team um, in the graveyard for for those, and the ghosts um, that sort of get re-projected out of um, Voldemort's wand. But also then within that sequence, you've got um, digital top-ups and the Death Eaters, um, and the Death Eaters were being worked on. I think it was, I can't remember, um, possibly Cinecite, um, or um, Right. And they, we had to sort of share the plates and we had to coordinate between not just the wow. teams working within us, but outside. Um, coming back to, to Charlie, um, we looked after the Yumpa Loompas, the White Tunnel, um, Frame store were working on the squirrels. Oh yeah, the squirrel room. So there wasn't much sort of crossover of plates within that. You know, so multiple. You didn't see a, a squirrel canoeing down the chocolate river. Yeah, so that kind of coexistence between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were able to sort of stand alone um, in to more degree yeah. on Charlie, but but things like Potter, um, where you've got multiple things going on in multiple in the same shot, yeah. there's a lot of sort of cross coordination. I've never really thought about that, that kind of accumulation of labor yeah. within, within effect shots that are themselves composites of not just digital and live action effects, but live action effects and then four or five different studios yeah. worth of material. Coming to, and again, yeah. there was always you know, one element, like the nose might be approved um, by the director, but I know we're still waiting on the Death Eater effect or vice versa, but no, the wand effect. So there was always, again, this sort of, and it had to be agreed very early on who was actually going to be bringing the the total elements together in the final comp. Mm. Um, Because of course, yeah, you're you're literally taking the work of other people in another company and being responsible for that. You know, it's a, a lot to coordinate. Um, Which is kind of fascinating as yeah. well because, that, I mean, if you think about digital effects are what only, well, less than 20 years old, mm. I guess, really. Um, if Toy Story is out in 95, this is less than 10 years on from that. And it yeah. seems like there's a wealth of studios that emerge in that period or, or I suppose, before to some extent. But um, the Toy Story effect, the domino effect of, mm. oh, we can do digital effects and, and this rise of... Uh, like, I guess larger companies that have now visual effects arms or they have subsidiaries or they yeah. work with different facilities and companies and studios but it seems like a film like Charlie's sort of uh, and the Harry Potter movies are, are really interesting spaces where a lots of these studios are not in competition per se but they are meeting grounds for mm. lots of different effects artists and you said that some people are uh, bringing particular skills to the table so yeah I think that's, that's a kind of really a, a way of telling visual effects history that isn't yeah. just um, about the way things look, but there's sort of industrial context for that. And there's also sort of like a before you are granted a, um, the, the job, you have to kind of bid for it as well. So you kind of, it's, it's not just about money and the bottom line and, and yeah. the competition. It is a competition at the end of the day between companies. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and the finances have a big part in it. But yeah, the, it's the proprietary software. And again, Cinesite got the, um, the squirrels because they were really sort of the best at, at um, at fur at the time right um, and um, Harry Potter 
um, was it was um, given to a moving picture company because they would really sort of had put a lot of focus into skin and sort of subsurface scatter, which was a big thing to talk about at the time. Yeah, so that's kind of light then, glowing underneath yeah. the, so light particles come in. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why I'm telling you this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. What, could you explain yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. just literally the way that sort of light influences objects, especially right. skin, that because there's multiple layers of skin, it's sort of, yeah, it, it, it penetrates the, the skin differently. Mm. And of course the blood vessels and the sort of different parts of the, the buildup make the light react differently. Yeah. Um, wow. And it was, uh, again, something that off the back of Potter, the MPC was then able to sort of um, really push that and evolve that, the, the software um, mm. into other characters um, to, to, to great effect, I think, really. Yeah. Um, so in terms of labour practice, then, you've got, you've got a situation where you're... I knew nothing about all of this, of course, because I'm the, I'm the Luddite fantasy guy on this, but you've got different companies working supposedly together mm -hmm. in supposed harmony for the good of the movie and the good of the, the vision of the studio. But at the same time, there's got to be a certain element of, you know, you're, you're working with your competitors. Yes. Uh, and you've got to somehow do something that means you'll get the next job. Totally. Whilst at the same time, bending so that, it, so that audiences aren't aware who did... Yes. It's all got to be a seamless whole. And yeah, you know, the sort of again one of the guiding <laughs> premises of a visual effects sort of um, team is that we don't want the audiences to know that any visual effects has been done. You know, if they're wondering how it was done, then we've done our job. And mm -hmm. if they're totally oblivious to the fact that any visual effects happened, we've done the job extraordinarily well. Yeah. But yes, there's competition always between other facilities, but um, but that is also positive in the way that it helps to make mm -hmm. organisations really raise their game. Um, but also the industry, especially um, we were working in Soho, it's an incredibly small footprint that all of mm -hmm. these facilities um, coexist. And, um, and a lot of the people working on the same, on different projects, know each other. So there is a harmony already because they are geeks, nerds, yeah, yeah. Um, and I include myself in that, who Guilty. just work together <laughs> yeah, yeah. to create this phenomenal, you know, to, to work on these incredible projects. Um, and I think that there is, yeah, there's hard times, there's stress, there's seven days week, seven day week sometimes. Um, and it is creativity with a gun to your head a lot of the time. Um, but at the same time, not everybody gets to do these jobs and have that sort of exposure to these amazing um, people that you're collaborating with. So, yes, competition, but positive in terms of sort of game raising. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And yeah, it, it just might be inappropriate, but it's a very incestuous industry in that, yeah, you might be working for one facility for one project but then you might move to another one right, right. Um, for the next project because they need animation or whatever it is that your specialism is um, or that the project is just <laughs> really amazing um, and there's sort of attractions that move people around so it's sort of people don't just sit in the silo of one facility it, it is quite um, migratory yeah. Did you find your skip like you know you learn how to do or you you get more experience doing skin on mm -hmm. one film and then you can take that onto the next yeah. and you're building up this sort of arsenal of professional experiences. Definitely. And again, the, the industry and... wants specialists, and there are a few sort of TD positions, technical directors, 
um, who oversee and supervisors oversee. But again, when you think about the production pipeline, sort of from the initial idea to what actually appears on screen, you want people to, to fit in that pipeline very sort of specifically and very quickly. And so you want someone to know what it is that they are being brought in to do. They also need to know what's before them in the pipeline so they can pick things up, but they also know where, what they're handing off to mm -hmm. other people, other members of the team in the pipeline. So yes, you'll find um, hard body modelers, you know, building cars or, you know, tumblers, Batman's tumbler, um, or tables and props and physical buildings. And then soft body, more sort of character modelers, um, building mammoths, beasts, creatures, polar bears, you know, things that are organic. Um, and likewise with riggers, um, you, they are very specific job titles that people fit into in the character animators and people mm. that sort of, they, they know what it is that they're doing and you need to have that sort of confidence to be able to, to literally mm. parachute into the pipeline and, and do your job and then sometimes move on or keep that evolution going within the same organization. Okay, I just want to pause the podcast for a second there, Chris, because I want to talk about social media. What is social media and how can we use it? Social media is an online platform where people get together to discuss, debate and never shout at one another. But for the purposes of fantasy animation, it's a really important device for us to help grow our audience. I know a like and a retweet seem a bit cumbersome and they seem like they're not a big deal, but taking five seconds out of your day to do that with our posts can really help us spread our visibility. Facebook and Twitter are like standing on street corners with a megaphone, shouting at people. We are the local crazy person and we need your help to give us a bigger megaphone. Or if you own an actual megaphone, find a street corner and do it yourself. So what did you, just to come back to sort of Charlie and talk about you, mm. what was the biggest sort of thing you felt you took from that, if it was just one thing, or was there a collection of things that you uh, felt? It sounds like it was quite, it was, it was sort of an important role for your career. That you yes, yeah. Valiant, where do you go next? Oh, yeah. Right, okay, yeah, and then I remained with MPC for, I think it was up to seven years, yeah, you know, okay. working from project to project. Um, so coming back to that sort of luck yeah. that, you know, I think that there's a sort of declaration to the ether that actually if you declare something, things do happen, but of course not by themselves, <laughs> you make them happen. Um, but also, yeah, it, I mean, just having that insight into the, the world of the sort of the estate of Dahl, but mm -hmm. also Tim Burton, um, and that the, what you sort of and again, there was a Wonka-like element that you think, you know, these visual effects houses, you know, they've got it made. Um, and sometimes when you pop behind the curtain, things are not quite as uh, well-organized or smooth as you might expect. But at the end of the day, you make it work. And I think that, um, that that's another sort of take home is that, mm -hmm. yeah, collaboratively, you, you can make things, even in very sometimes difficult circumstances, work. There are a few uh, uh, chewing gums that turned a few people into blueberries. On yes, the yeah. And yeah. again, because we were brought late into the project, and again, you've mentioned Violet Blueberry, she was originally um, proposed as a prosthetic okay. suit that the actress, I can't remember her name. Um, uh, and Anna Sophia Robb. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, and you did that without Googling it. So I, know yeah. that. <laughs> I know, I know, I knew it. So I was like, this is the only time on the podcast where I can do this. So, yeah. Alex is um, historically yeah. terrible with names. So that's, that's, <laughs> well, there you go. Kudos you. to you. Well, I'm off. Um, we'll um, it Google it just Drop to the mic. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> 
but she was originally sort of yeah. in a blow-up prosthetic suit, but it, very late in the day it was decided that that just wasn't working. Right. Um, and so, yeah, the sequence had to be very quickly turned around um, into to CG. Um, so CG is a corrective. That's interesting, the corrective to other weapons. They're, they're trying it out, yeah. trying it out, and it doesn't work. But again, what wasn't working about it? It just didn't look right. I think right, the yeah. scale of it. Um, and again, the Oompa Loompas in the, the pink candy boat, originally um, it was proposed that they were going to be animatronic rowers. Mm-hmm. And they did. You know, they, they built many of them, but it just was not seamless enough. And they, they looked very sort of um, staccato in their movement. And there was a, there was, it lacked that sort of um, fluidity. Yeah. And again, that's why I kind of, um, I really respect Tim Burton. Um, in his vision for direction it's changed slightly but he always sort of tries to sort of seek out a practical solution to very high-tech problems um and then eventually by time he's kind of evolved away from that because actually it sometimes might be easier or cheaper than um it, to do it in, in CG. But they, there's always this sort of really nice crossover between live action, puppetry sometimes, yeah. um, use of animals, and then CG augmentation um, where, where it's needed. Yeah. Um, well, that's really interesting, I think, because when we, obviously, when we sit and watch the movie and we, mm-hmm. we make our respective notes on fantasy and animation, I my notes on animation weren't as plentiful at the start as they were... I guess later on mm. when the, the doors to the factory are opened. Um, but it's interesting because I've got my first note, I think is obviously the first opening sequence is largely digital where you have the mechanics of all the bars as they flow through. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong, but I got a sense that that was um, when you're seeing the cogs and the, the conveyor belts yeah. with all the, the chocolate bars in. Uh, and then you mentioned earlier that there were a few pickups with mm. the hand going in and placing the, the golden tickets into the chocolate bars. Um, and then it seems like you're, so the first sequence that you mentioned that you, that you worked on, um, the chocolate palace, mm. that comes relatively early on in the film. So that's part of a background as to who Willy Wonka is or because you don't see his face for a long time and that opening I guess that opening five ten minutes is okay so who is this guy Uh, I mean it does set up the Bucket family but largely who is Wonka Uh, what's his what's what's his bag I guess Um, but as part of that not seeing his his face you see often see him in silhouette or you hear his voice uh, and the narrative voiceover is explaining his background and his and, and his project and then we get this chocolate Palace. So mm. what's so what's what's going on with that sequence? I'm I'm really interested mm. in because as I said, that was the sequence where I went. That's really cool. Yeah. Um. So I'd love to know more about because as I said, it does come early on in the film, and I just wondered, you know, the stakes of that sequence yeah. maybe for you and, and a bit of background well, again, on that it's, sequence. It, it's about establishing the character of Wonka and sort of the importance, the global importance as well. You we actually go to India for this, and although we've sort of seen labels being stuck to boxes and things, you know, he's he's away from his sort of, you know, literally the end of the, the street from the bucket house. He's now a global figure. Um, and it is, it's about this building this enigmatic character. Yeah. We, we often see him sort of from behind. We hear the voice, which again, we, uh, you know, we haven't seen him speaking yet. Yeah. Um, and it's about the silhouette. You know, he's often sort of, you know, wearing that hat, um, very sort of bobbed hair. Um, so it, it, it's a flashback sequence. Again, it's yeah. a narrative device, isn't it, to establish who he is the craziness of the scale of some of these projects i mean who would build a palace made who would build a a Mm. palace made of chocolate especially in india and scorching heat you know um 
but it also connects um, from a personal point of view the um, character of Grandpa Joe to um, to Wonka because yep. it's him that's telling these stories having worked with Wonka and having met him um, and yeah the, the sequence I think is is really sort of lush looking you know again because it's it's got a different color grade on it it's this sort of lovely burnt red browns and again a really interesting combination between live action that's what I was going to ask what parts were digital uh, what parts were live action there are parts that I think are very obviously digital right in that sequence in particular um but there's some really beautiful sort of moments where um, they really do successfully blend. Um, the, the actors, um, Prince Pondicherry and his wife, were, were shot on um, large-scale stages um, with a lot of fluid chocolate <laughs> around. They had also built these amazing pillars, um, which I don't actually know what the material was made from, but it was, it was, it was soft, so, so something like a sponge that had been latex coated but they were on ropes suspended from the ceiling with molten chocolate sort of being poured down them and if you released the rope obviously the weight of the pillar caused it to sink and squash on itself and they just they were mesmerizing to watch because they just sort of sank and it was like melting chocolate which mm. obviously was the objective um and then the larger scale shots and sort of background um scene top up was um was cg some of it was um a 2d approach um there's a very early shot where um the introduction to the sequence where we see a, a draftsman plan yeah. of the chocolate palace and then you drop they, they drop and it's it sort down. of in the process of being, it's in built. The process of yeah. being built that was um predominantly a, a 2d matte painting um with some live action elements of um of, of characters um just superimposed, right? Yeah, just, yeah. just um, they'd been shot on green screen, and then sort of scaled in to, to be appropriate because they were silhouetted and they were quite a far away mm -hmm. level of detail um, could be diminished, and it was um, easier to do it that way. Um, and then there was a, a, a shot later on where the heat of the sun has totally melted the palace, and we see the the, the prince and the princess from behind covered in chocolate and yep. the palace slowly yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. again that was a mixture of 2D and 3D elements matte painting matte painters worked really hard on that sequence um, from a whole sort of range of um, holiday photographs essentially yeah. of your hot locations but trying to sort of match up that um, the light source and a little bit of movement from essentially 2D plates um, and there were a couple of 3D elements in there of sort of turrets falling and leaning over that just, it, it, would, it was just easier to do it with a, a CG um, mm. embellishment than, than 2D because it just gave that sense of dimensionality. So I have two questions. Well, yeah. yeah, two questions. One, hopefully, is a straightforward thing. The other one is potentially veering into Alex's um, impossible question, which he tends to ask, which is, um, one, I just wondered, is there a difference? And it's always fascinating to me, the difference between green and blue screen. Mm. You, and whether that's connected to my first question then would be, what is digital top-up? Um, digital that's an interesting... Yeah, digital top-up is where you have um, predominantly live action plate yep. um, and a possibly a blue or green screen background. Mm. Um, but it's things that go further into the background. For example, pirates... Um, that I worked on with Ardman. Um, a lot of the action takes part uh, takes place on a, a ship. Yep. Um, so sea, 
and Tropical Islands and Blue Sky is sort of digital top up. Um, Sweeney Todd, which is another project that I was, I oversaw some of the asset building um, for, for that project. Live action plate shot, um, all of the buildings that go off into the, the, the distance of Victorian London and Sky, that's that sort of digital top up. Okay. So, and again, with coming back to Charlie, mm -hmm. um, there were fully CG shots. Yeah. Um, the boat rocketing down uh, the rapids, so chocolate river, chocolate boat, um, digital doubles in the boat, yeah. CG background, fully CG. Um, and then you had some plates where um, Johnny Depp um, and Freddie Highmore sitting in the back of the boat, for example, shot on a green screen with changing color lights going over them as they you know, sort of went down the, the tunnel. We then had to CG top up. Yeah, the, the the background ceramic um, matching the light color yeah, as it yeah. went. You know, sort of had to synchronize the, both the movement of the boat, of the camera, the background, and the lights. So you're in service of all those elements. Then. Yes, yeah, and wow. generally there would always be a um, a CG supervisor on set um, taking camera measurements, just photographing light setups, getting color reference and things like that. Yeah. Um, and we were also given some elements of costume as well, so we could sort of really see how the light affected that plum color coat, how um, the light, we had a, a section of the pink candy boat, um, again, so that we could see how the light reacted to the fabric that it was made from. Um, so yeah, a lot of sort of things yeah. going on. And again, a lot of sort of coordination in terms of making sure that it felt like no effects had been been done on the on the sequence. Mm -hmm. um, and then there, obviously there were some purely CG, um, purely live action sequences within uh, shots yeah. within that sequence. Was well, so I said, I have a few my, my notes at the start. I mean, I suppose it seems like what you're saying, and, and my gut reaction would be that okay, well, the effects start when they enter into the the this kind of surreal, but also realistic making. Uh, there's a, you know the way in which fantasy, I guess, is 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 built into this simulation of of more. Um, but it seems like there's a lot of digital stuff before we even get through the doors of the totally, factory that yeah. is perhaps less uh, or, or not as noticeable mm -hmm. or, or designed to be less noticeable yeah. or more invisible. I don't really know whether that's... Yeah, no, there's digital effects all, pretty much in every shot, I would have thought, before yeah. they even got to... You know, and in colour grading. I was going to say... Digital process. Yeah. So the, the, the bucket house would have a specific colour grade. Because that's a lot grayer. In daytime and nighttime. Okay, yeah. And then the streets would have, yeah, and the, the sort of very saturated blue sky above the factory. You know, it's really iconic, that sort mm. of blue, I think. Um, and even Johnny Depp had a... Um, well, they kind of joked and called it you know, the, the, the Johnny button. Um, where he... Because he was so sort of... Um, bleached in a way yes. um, that it was a very specific color grade that they would use to, to create that consistent look um, to his very sort of clean facade you know a clean face so he's wearing a form of like digital makeup in a way yes right I mean he, he obviously had makeup and was very clean shaved um, but he had a color grade sort of that that push that sort of saturation and it's similar to filters that use an apps in a way in a yeah. very simple way you know um on instagram you can press a specific filter that gives you that sort of color tone it's that same sort of um and you could achieve yeah. it through lighting you could achieve it through digital effects but yeah it's um 
just yeah, it's just a different way of thinking. You know, that kind of color grading is a different way of yeah. thinking about the, the way visual effects are used. And, and in this film, to clearly mark out those two spaces between the kind of poverty, uh, you know, those mm. colors tell the narrative. They tell the story, don't they? Of yeah. The, this is the the uh, situation that kind of Charlie Bucket finds himself in. The golden ticket being that moment of literal color mm. that yeah. then provides access to a whole world of yeah. you know, pure make, imagination. Should we make the obligatory Wizard of Oz reference? Go on, go for well, it. You know, there's yeah. something Wizard of Ozzy in the use of color in the film. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah. The, the black and white. But also, yeah. there's that link to, and I recently saw the um, the the Wilder version. Um, had you seen it? But sorry, so had you seen it before? Oh yes, and, yeah, and I you were grew feed, up with and it. you were. Did that? I guess an obvious question would be: yeah. Is that then feeding into some of the decisions that you're making? Whether to go against or for? Yeah. Is it in your thoughts, or are you just trying to get? Because that's out a tricky thing. Well, which, when you say against or for, against or for what? So when you you've watched the original, yes. you love the book. Yes. You're working on your dream golden yes. ticket project. Yeah. Do you then go right? Well, I've seen. I know the previous one so well. Yeah. I know you're. You know, you're working with a whole team and, and a directorial vision and all this yeah. sort of thing. Is that original influencing some of the decisions that you're making or thinking Those about? Those decisions were made way above me. Right, yeah, right, way right. above me. And you could drip um, feed some. I mean, yeah, you in, could. Uh, there, there were moments where you, yeah, with every sort of creative team in the breakout coffee, you know, this would be fun. I'll put discussion. This yeah, yeah. You might be like, maybe we could do this. And mm. there were moments where um, sort of the the um, CG soups would make suggestions. Um, to the director or the producers to suggest yeah. you know sometimes it was um, shot length sometimes it was creative um, creative ideas but and again this is a perspective that you know coming quite late to the project it was yeah th there was very little at that point that actually you could really sort of strongly influence yeah um, yeah. We, we, we find ourselves when we talk to practitioners on this on this podcast there's this lovely sort of I don't know uh, paradox between animation as this inherently creative medium mm. because you know like, you know, at the vet there's lots of people listening who aren't animators like this sounds like you know your dream job and like kids grow up drawing and think mm. oh, I want to be animators but then there's that narrative um, and then there's the other narrative of you know you're sitting there and you're sort of implementing the will and in many ways you know it's a very technical job and it's a very yeah. you know um, process mm. heavy job and labour intensive job and obviously I suspect that well I know having talked to people like yourself Stuart is that, that, that it's somewhere in between the two but yeah. uh, it's interesting with this one it's right did you feel did you find it a creative experience I'm sure it was enriching was it totally enriching yeah. creative probably not yeah. for that in this instance because and although the the project. Um, or the sequence rather um, had a lot of sort of fluidity opportunity the, 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 we were very much up against the time yeah. um, and other pressures you know, came into play as well that um, we, we had to um, do a trailer for the Super Bowl which meant um, you know, obviously we get a cut of the, the dream um, trailer some of the things hadn't really even really properly been nailed down certainly Tim hadn't seen them by that point so you're kind of working on your job but also these other things keep you know press material um, trailers in particular that Super Bowl one um, we just had to really crank it out very quickly um, but obviously with great care and finesse no, sure. but the things hadn't been fully established by that point in terms of the look or the pace etc um, so there, there really wasn't an a opportunity to sort of really creatively mm -hmm. enjoy the project. Um, but 
as my first sort of project and proper sort of venture into the world of Tim Burton from a personal point of view, but also from that level of visual effects, it was amazing, yeah. um, amazingly rewarding. Um, and just the opportunity to sort of, you know, be in the presence of the man himself, you know, sort of during review sessions and and just hear that sort of creative dialogue direct from from someone of, of that level mm. was amazing. And yeah. so also just to recognize he's, he's, he's a man mm -hmm. at the end of the day. He's very human, very funny. Um, and yeah, just incredibly rewarding from that point of view. Right. Um, I wanted to just two questions about the Pondicherry sequence mm. that I didn't get a chance to ask earlier. Uh, one is quite superficial, the other is more of sort of my, what I'm supposed to be doing when I ask about fantasy. The first one is you mentioned there was chocolate on set. Yes. Uh, how much chocolate? What are we talking about here? Paint me Quite the a lot. Um, I didn't actually ever get onto set for that project because, mm -hmm. like I said, it, it was all shot. Mm -hmm. But there was um, obviously the supervisors that were overseeing other sequences, um, especially in the chocolate room. There was a lot. Right. Like, I, I don't even remember the figures. Cool. Um, it also smelt, apparently. Oh. It could, bad. Yeah. Um, because it had been in the open air for a long period of time as well, and probably this chemical, um, I don't even know what was put into it. But yeah, apparently there was an aroma on, on set sure. that was unpleasant. And the um, Pondicherry Palace, you, from the, uh, the raw footage you were seeing, there's, there's what, there's, do you say there's uh, liquid chocolate in there? Yes, yeah, there's sort of, it's sort of real it was over the floor. Not, not real, no, okay. it's all, all synthetic. Okay. Um, but we did, we also, there, were, there was a point where we did get um, sort of like, uh, what are they, just plastic, four gallon, you know, sort of, you know, the stuff that you get, um, vegetable oil oh, yeah, on yeah. a large scale delivered to sort of takeout shops. We got some of that um, sent over um, and they had to, I think, specifically make it for us to pour out and test and things like that. Oh, yeah, okay. um, and again, thankfully, it didn't smell because it no, was contained, sure. but... The, the sets apparently really stink. Well, those answers weren't quite as delicious as I was hoping. No, there was, fine. I don't think there was. And I think that the, the, the actor who played Augustus, um, oh, yeah. when he actually has to fall into it, you know, he had to have things put in his ears yeah. and up his nose so that this stuff just didn't properly <laughs> get yeah. into it. Messy work. Because I don't think there was much organic about it. No, you know, sure. I think Green and Blacks would have something to say about the recipe. <laughs> but, um, but no, not... Okay. Um, other brands were available. Other, yeah, sorry, I just... That, that <laughs> commitment <laughs> to practicality is there again. Yes, like, yes. Yeah, And again, because, that. yeah, to the idea of melting that amount of sort of chocolates mm. unrealistic sure. and probably unsanitary. And this is obviously before Bake Off, so... Well, no exactly, to do it. yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And and to that scale yeah, as well, absolutely. the scale absolutely. was enormous. Yeah. I was amazed there was even something that resembled chocolate. Yeah, and, but they had teams working this stuff out for I think quite a long period of time during pre-production. Right. Um, yeah, to, to to get it right, right. and then yeah. manufacture it on the level that was needed. The fantasy question I was going to ask was that I that Pondicherry sequence also speaks to me. It's kind of like an, a a moment of annunciation on the part of the creative team, and that we're going. We're going to do things that are a little bit different to that the, the wilder version yes. here because there are lots of these sort of cutaway sequences throughout the movie and and to me it speaks of it speaks of an attempt to replicate the narration style mm. of the original novel because the original was full of these little asides that's like where did you get this from yes. oh I was trekking round the the deepest darkest jungles of some random fictional country yeah. and happened upon a vermicious canid or some mm. other mate and the roly-poly bird and then this happened and then you're like what? Well, you know, but it's all delivered in 
sort of dialogue, yes, isn't it? Absolutely. And we actually get to see the Oompa Loompa vi- uh, village and in this version. And, and, and again, that's where I think that, that it really does reflect the original. Yes. And the fact that we see the, the Chocolate Palace, but also that the squirrels, you know, it's, it's uh-huh. the nut room in the original not the golden goose room yes you know, and to to have that sort of authenticity return i think is you know for, mm. for a geek of the original who yeah loved the authentic it. fantasy yeah. return yeah it's, well, it, uh, it also it builds what you get in the novel is yes that basically the entire novel takes around in a chocolate factory that is magical but you're in a magical world beyond that yes. it's not just yeah. the chocolate factory yeah wonka is this magical figure that has well, access to Oompa these Loompa land yes. geographically where is that we don't know we don't necessarily care but we, <laughs> Absolutely. i just love the fact that we know that it exists. they all seem to live in rolled our world don't yeah. they where there are these birds and animals and things that are just yeah. always popping up in the background um, and the the film communicates that very mm. nicely through these jumps, these jump away sequences. Yeah. So I wonder, I guess to sort of bring it back to animation, like what, what, would you you have these two sequences? One is set in a chocolate factory in a town that is, you know, I don't know where, where it was shot in the film, but it, I know the original is clearly a, somewhere in South Germany or something yes, like yeah, that. Munich, and this I one, used, I don't yeah. know, must be in the UK somewhere. I yeah. guess was it. Um, yeah. So it's, it has to be a certain level of realism to the lighting, and then you've got this you know, exotic, mm. uh, glamorous location that's part of the world. Did you approach the two things differently or were you directed to approach them differently? Was one In terms of animation? Well, it's just or... in terms of you're building a world here. Yes, right? but yeah. Two, two different, very different parts of the same world. Yeah, right. I mean, they're, they're, they're just inherently fantastic, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. Anyway. Um, but in terms of sort of, um, yeah, it, it really came to, to the colour grade, especially for okay. Pondicherry. Um, in terms of sort of uh, the animation of that, um, it was the sense of scale. So it uh-huh. really came down to sort of the shot composition, which had been established in the plates. Um, but this this scale, and there's um, a sequence, a, a shot where the prince and princess are looking up to the the dome as it sort of starts to melt and yeah. then sort of cascade down. Um, and it was that element of scale that he really wanted to achieve. And again, there's slight crossing the line between, I think it's fairly obvious that it's a CG approach in, in the, that shot in particular, um, because it's such a vast, vast environment. And it, it kind of melts fractionally too fast, I think. Um, and it, for me, every time I break it, I watch it, I'm like, ah, oh, you know, <laughs> slow down. I'm slowed it down a little bit, but it's, especially for that sense of scale that, this is sort of like five, six, seven stories above yeah. their heads, but we can kind of still really, you know, it, it's like water pouring down. But it was that sense of drama that they wanted. And I guess there's also a time issue, right, with these cutaway, brief cutaways. Yes. Yeah. You kind of want to watch the, the disaster movie, Pondicherry, The Chocolate Palace, yeah. don't you, where the last 45 minutes is the But in reality, slowly... it would probably be fairly boring. Yeah. It? <laughs> 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 it's like slowly melting. <laughs> Chocolate. Yeah. yeah um, I'm gonna, given that Alex just asked a vaguely animation question, I'm gonna break the rules <laughs> further and ask a fantasy question. I guess. Um, and we've talked previously. I think about if something is so surreal and fantastic in its design, it becomes harder mm. because you're trying to grab. And so, yeah, you, you, in terms of this approach of different sequences, um, I guess ostensibly the first part of the film where where you are with the bucket family and you're with that. That's that's sort of easy to imagine. Okay, so what does poverty look like? Mm. I guess. Well, it might look like this. It might have ramifications for space or the enclosedness of the family um i just wonder whether it's you know is it harder to work on something like um the fact inside the factory where you've got these plates that you're given that mm. are blank and then you're trying to imagine something in the case of the, the the sequence the um kind of boat sequence that is 
you have a, a ostensibly a blank canvas, mm. but you are trying to imagine, you've now got to imagine a fantasy world that perhaps doesn't have that grounding in reality. So I guess I'm just wondering if, if, if that, because through the stylization of it, is it, if something is so surreal in, the, in its design, is it, is it more difficult to then ground in? No, I think kind of reality reality is probably harder to achieve. Right, right. And I think especially with such stylization that there's opportunity for that total suspension of disbelief, you know. Um, and audiences who are, you know, especially sort of fans of such stylization, they often are just sort of, you know, that's a lot of the sort of the battle one that they just, they just want to believe it and they do. But stylization is, I mean, even the most fantastic needs to be grounded in reality. Mm. Um, but I think, yeah, stylization is probably easier. I mean, it depends on what it is. Um, reality is harder um, to achieve because even just a simple sort of walk cycle can often be very sort of um, unnerving if it's slightly wrong. We all kind of intuitively know what a human moves like. You know, yeah, for various reasons, characteristics make us move differently. So audiences are going to make those judgments on things. Yes, yeah. yeah. But if it's a fantastic creature that hasn't ever been seen or a you know, three-foot man, there's allowances to sort of to play with that a little mm. bit in that we don't necessarily know what the inside of Wonka's factory and, and, like. and the or, characters in the film haven't really seen what no, it's like exactly. inside. Yeah. So. so weird, you know, sort of seeing it for the first time, they're seeing it for yeah. the first time. And it's also skewed through the vision of a very visionary director and his team of creatives. So there is that sort of allowance that um, mm. things can be slightly different. Yeah. Um, and but again on a project another project 10,000 BC um, I was sort of coordinating I was wrangling the mammoths in that I don't know if you've seen the, the Roland Emmerich um, I have there's an ostrich they're, sequence in uh, there, a terror bird uh, sorry I apologise yes sorry yes. Um, but yeah mammoths and again <laughs> we'll cut that out Alex. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. we were um, charged with yeah creating the, these, these mammoths and some of the concept work that they had done was amazing but actually the the physicality the the anatomy of these creatures if you actually try to get them moving they trip over their feet mm. they, they wouldn't necessarily work so we went mm. right back to reality and studied the the anatomy of elephants um, and to really make sure that these creatures could actually do you know literally run the canyons build the pyramids as well mm. As they do. Yeah, well, I, I think certainly, I, well, my feeling on in scholarship that talks about visual effects and augmented versions of mm. realism or stylized realism, and that the emphasis is often placed on the, the animation, i.e. the stylized version of that. Yeah. But you seem to be saying that actually to go, you need to go back, you need to go back to reality. That yeah, actually, everything. Because reality often works. Yeah. Um, and, and again, if it's, if it's too fantastic... There, I mean, they're, they're, yes, there are things that work when they're just total fantasy yeah. without any sort of um, sense of the reality. But if you want your audience to believe you and be taken along on the same ride that you want them to without thinking that just looks rubbish, that would never work, there needs to be a sense of reality. And it is that sort of imaginative realism that I really sort of... Um, mm. yeah, it's that fine line. And dragons, for example, you know, we, we don't know what like but we see them everywhere now you know from game of thrones fantastic beasts and where to find them harry potter 
but you know it's it's a it's that sort of um, hybridization of lots of different things mm. from our known world that we can sort of project together into to our into the fantasy world. That, you know, that's what a lot of scholars in fantasy actually isn't this sort of abstract new realm where no. reality is left behind. It's actually just playing with reality, yeah. tweaking it, sticking that yeah. over there and putting that there, changing that, making that bigger. Yeah. It's sort of really all fantasy is. So totally. Can, and again, you that's look at... work through in your process. So the, um, da Vinci, Leonardo da Vinci talks about that in his sketchbooks, mm-hmm. you know, back then, you know, um, and sort of you take, if you want, I can't remember how he words it, but basically to create a creature not of this world with sort of absolute believability, take a head of a bulldog, take a body of a something and a this and a that. And apparently he used to do that, you know, mm. to create these creatures. Um, and his studio apparently stank because he would keep them for an obsessively long time mm. for creative merit. I'd first smell the chocolate, I guess. Well, exactly. Going yeah. off chocolate. Yeah. Wow. But it's again that sort of you know it, it's not a new thing, is it? Yeah. You know, but it's I think it's fundamental, and I think a lot of artists sort of um, try to just rely solely on their imagination without, and I think you can always tell who has referenced reality mm. and who mm. hasn't. It seems like Burton is a filmmaker. I'm trying to you know, tie this back into yeah. um, Burton's role as a director, and obviously he's tradi- he's. Um, Background in animation, of mm. course, is this this sort of um, famous route that he took through and out the other side of the Disney studio and that kind of thing. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, it, it seems like there's something, yeah, that we could, I mean, we could, we could spend hours talking about um, a world of pure imagination, but I think there's something around, yeah, Tim Burton's treatment of his kind of gothic treatment, mm. gothic in inverted commas, but a, a, a certain treatment of reality, a stylized image of reality that is, um, as you say, I think it's more difficult to do something in that world of imagination you need that anchor point of realism and the the moving of realism and it's different parts into something that ultimately becomes fantastic but coming back to that sort of gothic yeah i think charlie and chocolate factory is probably his most child friendly (laughs) of his films um and again there's that there was that expectation that right he's going to ramp this up you know with the sort of dull's clear sort of um misunderstanding for want of a better word slash hatred yeah. of children it would seem and again the, the the published book from what i've read um that was quite a toned down version of sort of political <laughs> correctness um what was actually published compared to his early drafts mm. and i think that there's that there's a character called herpes in the something yes draft, very the unusual and, like yeah. and just the the the, the, the um, demise of the children as mm. well was very sort of toned down yeah um I've kind of lost the, my direction of thought. No, I, I, I think that, yeah. But Burton's, Burton's film sort of almost is, is not as Yeah, no, I think creepy that yeah, it's, 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 yeah, there's yeah. elements of the creep and there's yeah. elements of... Um, <laughs> but I think that it could have, you know, I think yeah. everyone was kind of expecting it to be slightly more so. Um, and, yeah. But when you think about the, the, the world anyway, a, a grown man <laughs> living with, behind closed doors, hundreds of little people is naturally very creepy in mm-hmm. itself mm-hmm. um but i think it could have yeah it, there was a greater opportunity for him to take that sort of ownership which um yeah i, I, I don't know if i guess a, a, a rounding off question would just simply be 
how do you look back on the experience fondly? I mean, it's uh, obviously you, you said that you then went on to do other work mm. and, and you and you were with MPC for, for about seven time, years, yeah. something like that. Um, so is it you know is it a, a fond memory for you? Totally. On? And again, one of these things I often get asked, sort of, what's my favourite film? Do you like the Wilder version or the um, the Burton version of Charlie in particular? That each film that I've worked on holds a very different place in my heart because yes, it was my first sort of big. Um, cinema title that got my name you know properly in the credits and um yes i, I it was a great experience um personally a, professionally if yeah. you were watching if listeners are watching it what's what can they find that you would feel like oh yeah that's 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 me my bit. you know whether oh, it's just a, all those a bit of the water yeah no just a... just all of those because i oversaw yeah. the you know sort of from a coordination point yeah. of view um sequence management um the the yeah, just the minute that that map appears, you know, the, the sort of the draftsman mm. um, design of the palace to, to the but also the whole thing. And again, having worked alongside all of the colleagues who worked on multiple sequences, you know, th- th- there are special significance of, you know, there's always one shot that in every film that I've worked on called The Widowmaker that just will not get finaled or will not go right you know, and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was a, it wasn't one of my sequences but there was um, in the nut room uh, someone th- one of the Oompa Loompas throws a dead fish um, down the garbage chute and it's part of the song a halibut that was left over from breakfast or something um, and it was this the floppiness of this fish as the Oompa Loompa threw it no one could get that right and animators were working on it one producer even started to to work on it just to try and get it through approval um so there's lots of sort of little things that all the way through from a personal point of view i'm Mm. just like ah that was great or i really remember you know and even the hard times you're just like yeah now you know yeah so many because yeah, audiences watch and and this sort of seamlessness of effects from mm. the people that work on it are picking out you know yeah, yeah. Out, that's bit that bit yeah. that bit yeah. and it's yeah and it's as artists you fish to land on the floor yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> and as artists you always see the the worst bits in your own of work course. so yeah you're gonna if listeners were interested in knowing more about what you're doing here in uh, 2019 what is is there can they find you on social media or is there an event you're organising or a film they should be looking out for um, or what, I, what can they do what can they do to find more about what you're doing right now well I'm working in education yeah. so um, I'm, yeah teaching at Staffordshire University but I'm on social media um, all of my details are on IMDB as well from the, the projects that I've worked on brilliant I'm sort of tinkering away with the independent projects as well so um, yeah well best of luck with that thank, uh, you. thank you so much yes, for thank being you. so generous with your time and coming on the podcast um, you can find us always at fantasy-animation.org or on Twitter at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research, or of course on Facebook as well. Um, that's us for another week. Um, thanks again for joining us, Stuart. Thank Chris, you. um, you're here as always, and yep. I guess I'll just have to get used to that. Yeah, I'll um, see you next time. <laughs> yeah, see you next time, um, listeners, and uh, see you then. Bye. Bye. Everybody give a cheer. He's not as clever and so smart he barely can restrain it. With so much generosity, there's no 